Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, this is Richard. As many of you know, I recently moved out of my smart home, and now it's time to start making my new home my own. Rather than diving right into the deep end, I'm taking my time and being very deliberate about what I set up. I've learned some lessons along the way, including realizing some mistakes I made when leaving our old place, and I'm intentionally dragging my feet a little, as is the whole industry to some extent. We'll talk about that, too. We hope you'll enjoy this episode, part two, in my project of moving a smart home. Hey, everyone. I'm Adam Justice from ConnectSense, and welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome, Richard. Hey, how are you? Good. As you know, Richard recently moved, and we've already discussed about his experience of moving out of a smart home, and now we're going to pick up a few months later and talk a little bit about the experience of moving into a smart home. But before we do that, as usual, we have a question that we like to ask each other before the show starts, and this one is a little too spot on for this episode. But my question to you, Adam, is what smart home device would be the first thing that you would install in a new home? Well, first of all, I'm not buying a new home ever. <laughs> ever. It is a hassle, is it not? Yes. Uh, no, thanks. Especially not in this market. I may have a bit of a recency bias to this one, but we did just get a, I have to remember the name of this device. The newest Schlage like Sense outlet? No. The newest <laughs> Schlage lock, which is called the something plus. Encode the plus. The Encode plus? Yes, yeah, the Schlage yeah. Encode plus. It was particularly easy because we already had a Schlage Sense lock from a while back and everything is better about this lock and it's very family friendly. And uh, really liking the Apple Home Key experience. It's definitely very wife approved and um, and kid approved. So that one's a no brainer to me. I would not move into a home unless that was already on the front door. Wow, nice, nice. I'm actually surprised that your first one would be a lock. Because that's not also an easy job. I mean, that that's kind of like, you know, that's going to take an hour or so, depending on your current hardware situation. Yeah, and I was probably ruined by the fact that it was so easy because I had already done all that hard work the last time, and it was like a 15-minute job for redoing it. So <laughs> I would probably curse myself for, for, get, for that answer. But And your answer, we're going to get into later in the show. If you want to submit a question for us to open the show, you can do so by sending us a tweet with the hashtag AskAdamAndRichard. So, you are, you've are you been in your new home for a couple months now, 
And, you know, last time we talked about, you know, the moving out process and all the things you did for the new owners and just in general, how's the process been of resetting up a new smart home? Yeah. So a couple things, I've learned some things that I did wrong when I had torn down my old home. And we'll talk about those specific issues as we get to them. But also, I took a very measured approach this time. I didn't want to come in and just reinstall everything. I wanted to be very intentional in what we set up. So for the most part, I didn't just go adding things or resetting up everything that I had before. Really, really took our time in doing this. And I would say that I would barely call this a smart home right now because we just have a couple things that are are solving problems for us or that are based more on need and specific desires as opposed to, oh yeah, I'm going to make my home smart. And I think that perspective, which is a little new for me because I'm a gadget guy and I just want to get into it, right? That perspective has... I believe, helped me better tap into how most consumers might approach buying or setting up smart home stuff. It's not just because you want to make your home smart necessarily, but you have specific things that you need to do, problems you need to solve or things you'd like to see happen or work a certain way in your home. And so you tackle those as individual issues, which makes this whole compatibility thing even more important. Yeah, I think you raise a good point. And uh, I know we're going to talk about parks later, but this kind of came up as one of the themes about parks was, you know, that it's really not about gadgets for gadgets sake. It's about solving a problem and meeting a need in the home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So between landscapers, dog barks, and helicopters, I'm going to try and run through some of the things that I've been doing as uh, best I can, hopefully without too many interruptions. So first off, the first thing that we installed in the new home was that I reinstalled our Sonos speakers. And this actually came at the request of my partner while we were unpacking stuff. We're in a big new home. We have really no entertainment mechanism at all, yet TVs are still packed. That used to be the first thing I would unpack at every new home was my TV. But it took several days for us to get to a point where we could even do that. And we wanted music. We wanted something to listen to while we were working. So uh, I went searching for the Sonos boxes. And I say the Sonos boxes because I think we've talked about this before. I'm a box keeper. So all the Sonos speakers went back into their original Sonos boxes. And luckily, the movers had packed all of those boxes together when they did our packing. So pulled them out, got those things set up in a couple strategic places around the house, 
And once we got the TV set up, I was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to handle audio on my TV? Because this place is not really wired for sound, not wired for surround. I came from a family room that I had personally wired with Atmos. That would be quite a task in this new house. And I don't even know that it would work in this space that the family room occupies. So I'm not going to try to do that here. Bought the Sonos Arc. I used one of my trade-in credits from Sonos to get 30% off the cost of an Arc. And of course, because I didn't want a white one, I had to wait a month and a half to get a Sonos speaker because that's how things are now. But that's set up now and, and part of the sound system. And I'm pretty happy with that so far. Nice. Yeah, my parents have one of those at their lake house. And I think what I like about the Arc is you can accomplish a very simple setup because it has that HDMI. Yeah. HDMI in right from Arc, right, right. from the audio return channel of your television. So yeah. it's really slick. Yeah, so for them, they were able to, we just set up an Apple TV, the Arc TV, Apple TV remote for everything, and it's a really simple setup. And you can do the volume from the Apple TV because it does it via the HDMI, and it works really well. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Well, the house that we moved into did not have a Schlegen code lock on the front door. It did, however, have a ring doorbell at the front door and a couple of floodlight cams around the property. Now they weren't actually set up. I learned the hard way that the ring doorbell wasn't even really connected to anything. I had to go in and set up the wiring and my builder still hasn't managed to get the physical doorbell working properly on that. But I decided that since I'm familiar with ring and I have some other ring products, I wanted to continue to use ring. So I went through the process of setting those up and I did that on a new account that I created for this house. And when I set the devices up, I learned that I needed to set them up by the serial numbers. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I wasn't able to use the traditional pairing mechanism. Now, for the cams, they're mounted and they're in high location. So even doing the pairing by getting the serial number, entering that, then hitting the button is more tricky than I think anyone anticipated. I pointed it out to the builder about how inaccessible they made the one camera where they mounted it. And he's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that again. I have traumatic experiences with high mounted floodlight cams. And you said you still can't get one to join. I think there's probably not a single device I've ever fought with more than a ring floodlight. The old generation ring floodlight cam. I think they fixed it in the new one because I didn't have any problems with my newer one. But uh, I had this problem at my house. And then we had one ultimately we had to send back because we could not get it to pair. And it was mounted two floors up, like in the eve of a house uh, at my parents' lake house. And... Just a total royal pain in the butt. So I feel you on that one. Yeah, that ends up being quite a challenge. So my lesson from this, which I just shared with a friend of mine, was before you install anything smart, 
check to see if it has a serial number or code on it and take a picture of it. Because having to reinstall something and needing that code after it's already installed may not just be difficult. It may be impossible depending on how and where it's mounted. Now, I mentioned that I made some mistakes with accounts. And one of the mistakes that I made was that when I left my old account for Ring behind for the buyer of our home, I didn't realize that that account is grandfathered into a $10 a month plan that they no longer offer. I don't necessarily know that I could say that their $10 a month plan is now devalued, but it's different from what I was already paying for. And it's my understanding that what I was already paying for includes the monitoring stuff, that if I were to add the security system, that they only had one plan at the time. And so that $10 a month included the monitoring and everything else with their security system. Now you pay $20 a month or the discounted fee annually if you want that. So that was kind of a mistake on my part for leaving that behind. Exacerbated by the fact that it turns out the buyer chose not to even use that account. (laughs) They had a ring account of their own. And so he decided, since I'm already using this at another location, I'm just going to add a new home and add the new things to the account that I already have. So my account was sitting dormant, but it was still active, meaning it still had an active subscription. And I didn't realize that until I got billed the $100 for the renewal when it came around. So did you take your account back? So I did take my account back. Oh, good. And after approximately, and I really am not kidding about this, 17 times, maybe it was more like 13, but it was in the teens times of him having to send me a verification code because of their obnoxious two-factor authentication that they force on you. I finally got the account back under my information. So I will be moving my stuff to that account. I have not done that yet, but fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, voice assistants, we used to use echoes around the house using Amazon's voice assistant. And with Edward now using an old timey home pod, like the real big one in his office, I noticed that he was occasionally yelling to our echoes using Siri's name and it wasn't working. So I thought, you know what? I have a couple HomePod minis. Maybe we can just use HomePods around the house instead. So I bought a couple more HomePod minis and we are now an all Siri voice home. I wondered how that was going to be. There are certain things that I use that aren't supported. For example, my June oven, I can't preheat it anymore. I actually have to go over and touch the screen to turn on my June oven manually like an animal. How archaic. (laughs) But so far, so good. And with a combination of 
shortcuts and automations and some other stuff that I'll throw in that I'll talk about a little bit later, we've managed to be able to use it for pretty much everything that we would normally use an assistant for. So I've been pretty happy about that. Now, one of those things is talking to our speakers, like getting our speakers, meaning our Sonos speakers, to be able to play music for us. Edward and I both have Apple Music. So I was delighted to realize that when I asked it to play music, it played music it knew I would like. When Edward asked it to play music, it plays music it knows Edward would like. That's awesome. But what about our Sonos speakers? Our Sonos speakers are not the kind that have assistants built in, and we're using Siri. We're not using one of their built-in assistants. So how do you make that work? Well, some of our speakers are AirPlay capable. So I, through a little bit of research, realized that I could assign those AirPlay-capable Sonos speakers through the Home app to rooms in my home. They're not really HomeKit, but they are considered part of Apple's home. They don't show up in other HomeKit applications. It's really weird how this works, how they've set this up in the Home app. But it allows you then to say things like play music downstairs or play music in my office. So I have various rooms associated with a zone called downstairs, and you can play music in a zone if you want. So that's a really nice way of being able to control the Sonos speakers. And if something is already playing, like you just said, hey, play music, and you forgot, you can then say, play this downstairs, and it'll move it to all of the speakers in that downstairs zone. And to make this work on all of your speakers, it's really important that you go into your Sonos settings for your AirPlay settings and saying that you want to group the non-AirPlay speakers as well so that if you have things that are grouped together automatically, like I have multiple speakers downstairs, not all of them are AirPlay speakers. If I say play downstairs, it's also going to play to those speakers that are grouped with the AirPlay speakers. So it's working exactly the way we want it to. It just took a little while to figure it all out. Nice. It's pretty slick. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, lighting. So everybody knows I'm a big lighting geek and I haven't talked about lighting yet at all. So what have I done there? The first things that we set up with lighting were kind of fun things. I set up our Hue lighting devices in a variety of locations. Like we set up the play sync box and the play bars that we have in the family room with the TV so that we would have the, I say we, I'm the only one that really cares about that, but I like that effect. I think it's cool and uh, really enjoy that. And I uh, thank slash blame Jenny Tui for getting me hooked on that device because I think that was one of her favorite things when we spoke about new devices last year. I also reinstalled some light strips, some older light strips that I had and a floodlight in the studio where I'm recording right now, actually. And then reinstalled the Hue Lily spots that I had previously in our front yard, also in our yard here. 
So we now have some colored lighting outside, which is nice. And once again, I needed to add all of those by their serial numbers. This is not surprising, but it is an enormous hassle. It's not surprising because these are Zigbee devices. Right. And anybody who's dealt with Zigbee devices that have been added to a system knows that decoupling them from that system and reusing them is inherently problematic. I tried to avoid this problem by removing them from this old system before I shut it down, but that doesn't really seem to have done the job sufficiently. So I ended up having to, again, look for serial numbers, which is uh, either printed on the device itself or on a tag that's on its cord or something. And that was tricky finding all of those, did a lot of Googling. And then I was able to get all of those added. Again, take pictures. Don't install these things before you take pictures of those numbers. This brings up a good point, which is that I feel like so often device manufacturers focus only on that initial experience. And I think everybody could benefit from a much simpler second install experience, whether it's in your case that it's your own devices a second time or it's the case of somebody returned something and the store didn't realize it and a new user is trying to set it up for the first time, but it's already been set up once. Like, I think there's a huge opportunity for a better experience in this has already been set up once scenario. And it's something that device manufacturers need to really be thinking about. Absolutely. And I don't know if you're fishing for this compliment or not right now, but this is something that your app for ConnectSense products does really well. The ConnectSense app provides device-specific instruction on how to reset the device to pair in case it's not already in that mode. So I completely agree with you. That's something that manufacturers really need to think about. You know, I, I was <laughs> I, I was using something as silly as my dishwasher the other day, and there's like two or three long stickers in there promoting finish dishwashing detergent as part of some partnership they have with whoever makes finished products. But is there anything in there at all that tells you like how to actually pair this thing to their app? No, nothing. You have to go digging into a manual somewhere to figure that out. Right. Well, I learned something else that I did wrong with my Hue setup, and that's that when I left the old house, I didn't decouple my account on Hue with the Hue bridge that I left at the old house. Very similar to the ring problem. I left my account behind for them to use with the bridge that was there. And I didn't realize that just trying to assign it to a new bridge wouldn't work. I actually had to unassign it from a bridge there. And I didn't want to have to bother the new owners again. So I just created a new account. I'm like, oh, screw that. It's not worth it. I just created a new account and use that for my Hue stuff. And what's interesting is that you can set up Hue devices all over your home 
and it's all local control. So you don't have to have a cloud account to make it work if you don't want external access, even if you have it paired with your HomeKit stuff. That's really nice for people who are interested in that local control, like we were talking about last time. But then when you go to connect it to the cloud, you can connect multiple devices. Like I have a tablet and a phone and I had to log in on both of those and it associated, okay, then this is the same device. It's the same account. And that all worked actually better than I expected it to. Now the house also came with a MyQ garage system already installed. I had, you may remember, added one of those to my old garage doors. So I decided that I didn't want to do the hacky home bridge thing for that, which stores your account password in the clear. Our friend Eric had talked me out of that as much as I really wanted to use that plugin. But I instead bought a HomeKit bridge, the LiftMaster, I think they call it the Home Bridge. <laughs> and I bought one of those secondhand on eBay, got that set up and What's nice about that is that then gives me that on-screen experience for opening up the garage on my car through CarPlay. And so now both of our cars have that ability to open the garage right from your CarPlay dashboard. The other thing that does is it makes, makes it possible for me to just raise my wrist and say, open the garage door. And... I am loving that. I'm using that all the time. It's too bad you didn't tell me about this because, A, I could have given you my old HomeKit bridge because it's no <laughs> longer in service. And, B, I could have told you to just rip out my queue and put in a Tailwind device because it works so much better. But <laughs> Well, it already had the uh, lift system installed. It was brand new. It didn't seem like it made sense to replace something that – was working fine. I will say that while the MyQ stuff works fine for me and is very reliable, the bridge is not so. No. I find that HomeKit has a hard time reading status, sometimes can't control it. It seems to be completely random. I haven't figured out any rhyme to it. Um, unplugging and plugging it back in fixes it, but not for long. And it's not, half the time it fixes itself. I don't know. Put a ConnectSense rebooter on it. Reboot once a week. Yeah, Fixed. that may be necessary, actually. So, <laughs> Also, I mentioned HomeBridge. And I did install HomeBridge, not for my queue, but I installed it so that Ring and my older Sonos speakers and my Lutron Picos, which I love to use to control various things, including Sonos speakers, I wanted to get all those things set up. And uh, those are now working really well. I even have a bunch of automations set up, not automations, but I guess uh, scenes set up that I have tied to the buttons on the Pico to control a Gen 1 Sonos system, which doesn't really normally work as well. So I'm happy to get that running again. And then I've basically been using HomeKit for all my automation stuff. 
So sunset and bedtime automations, various other automations for specific uh, point solutions that I'll talk about next. But I've made the decision that I don't want a bunch of things happening in a bunch of different systems. I want it all in one place rather than having it as spread out as I did before. Yeah, makes it a lot simpler, a lot more contained and you should be able to troubleshoot easier because you have, you know, kind of one one place to go. Yep. Yep. And for this brief moment in time, you'll have a home kit home where everything's working, everything's online, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I have to remember to use the controller app to back it all up cuz uh it is all in pretty good shape right now. Yeah. All right. So I mentioned then that most everything else that we've been doing is problem solving. And so everything else I'm going to talk about is along those lines. For most of these, I'm using smart technology. For some, I'm not. So the first thing I want to mention and just kind of remind people about is sometimes all you really need is a motion sensor. You don't necessarily need automation. You don't necessarily need any sort of smart switch or connectivity just a motion switch or a motion dimmer can solve lots of problems in rooms like closets and mud rooms and storage spaces. And so I went around within the first couple of weeks and tried to install as many of those as I could in the places where it made the most sense. I'll caveat that. And it sort of depends on where those switches are. And if they are good for motion sensing, in some ways, probably my solution for this is a little overcomplicated. My, you know, my go-to is Hue products, the Lutron thing that goes over the light switch, mm -hmm. uh, the Lutron Aurora, and a Hue motion sensor. And the yep. nice thing about that is you can put the motion sensor wherever it makes the most sense to put the motion sensor, not necessarily where the light switch is. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm going to talk about a couple cases where I did something similar. And the biggest reason for that is that in many cases, switches for some closets are outside the closet. They're not actually in the closet. And you don't want passing by a closet to turn the light on inside. That's ridiculous. And you may not want to spend the time and energy in changing that switch configuration, like putting it on the inside, because that's a whole lot of hassle and creates a whole lot of mess. So yeah, sometimes that is necessary. Now, uh, similarly, I'm a big fan of humidity switches. One thing that people tend to look over or forget about is that humidity is your enemy in bathrooms. And so while most people will tend to turn on a fan while they're in the bathroom and then turn it off when they leave, the reality is that you should leave that fan on for another 10 or 15 minutes at least to continue to remove moisture if you were using it for the shower or something like that. So I installed a bunch of Leviton humidity sensing switches in all of the bathrooms. I didn't even know this is a thing. Oh, yeah. Like I didn't even know that was a category of devices. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. And they have manual switches on them. So you can just use them as like a timer switch if you, if you need one for a, a fan. So I also have one 
in say my uh, our the water closet in the primary bathroom. So the room where the toilet is has its own fan. Turn it on, and it'll remember to turn itself off. And I think most people would admit that's another space where you probably want to leave that fan on longer than when you're there, and it will turn itself off rather than. The problem that I have all the time, which is that I forget to turn them off and I go back hours later and the fan is still on. So, all right. Another not smart thing, but I think it's a clever solution that I've started seeing in a bunch of the home stores these days. And that is the ceiling can conversion that provides something of a nightlight ring around the edge of the light. So, like most ceiling cans, conversion kits, it's an LED thing that screws into where you would normally put your bulb if you had a downlight in there. And uh, in addition to that, then if you flip the switch off and on again, it's going to come on in a nightlight mode, which is just a very, very dim yellowish light or orange light. These are great for bathrooms at night. So I've installed these in all of the showers and again in the water closet in the primary bathroom. So a nice little thing. They're not very expensive. And I, I, I tend to think it's a, it's a nice touch, not just for yourself, but also for guests. Yeah. This is another one that you can solve with automation too, where if you want that motion sensor, kind of hue combo you can do that based on time of day i think the other thing that really solves this problem well is the uh nest smoke detectors have that like motion sensing really dim nightlight ring like yes yes that's another way to to kind of get that if you're in an area that needs a smoke detector i mean like that's my go-to get up to use the restroom at night um in my bedroom even so yeah. Yeah. Those are nice. We had them in our old home. I forgot about that. Now, when we moved into this house, like most new houses, there was not a dimmer anywhere in the house. So I have been gradually replacing switches and trying to replace them with smart dimmers or regular dimmers, depending on whether I think it needs to be smart or not. And I'm not trying to go too deep into the smart switch stuff yet, and I'll talk more about that in a bit. But for dimmers, I've been testing a bunch of different brands. The house has Leviton-branded switches throughout because, you know, everything has its brand emblazoned on it now or etched on it in one way or another. And I think everybody knows how OCD I am, so I kind of want to stick with other Leviton products to the extent that they will solve the problems that I have. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is just that, uh, believe it or not, a white switch is not a white switch is not a white switch. Yeah. And matching switches and plates, I can't stand if they don't look right together. So, yeah. Lutron, I think, probably has some of the best dimmers that you can get with the Maestro dimmers and uh, the motion sensing 
dimmers that they have as well. I tend to find their push button design a little bit clunky, so I don't love them. I would prefer rockers. And I tried another brand that was available on Amazon called Bestin. Never really heard of them before. Way different white than my other switches and not as good with some of my LEDs. So one of the reasons that I've been trying out a bunch of different dimmers is to find out what's going to work best with all of the LED fixtures in the house. Because a lot of times something that's going to work fine for just a regular halogen bulb or even an LED bulb may not work all that well if you have a fixture with onboard LEDs or some other sort of off-brand LED bulbs in it. Yeah. So that's been that's been tricky. And so far, of all of them, I like the Lutron best. So I'm not really quite sure what we're going to end up doing there because I don't like that push-button design. I would like to try to avoid that if possible. Just get over it and you control it all via Siri. At some point, that will happen. At some point. All right. I have a coat closet. Now we're going to talk about smart stuff. That coat closet has a light in the hallway outside it. The only way to turn that light on is to walk around the corner and then walk around another corner and hit the switch that's there. Or walk back out to the front door, which is about 10 meters away, and hit the switch there. That's absurd. Like, I don't know who did the electrical plan for this house, but that makes no sense whatsoever. This is always one of my biggest pet peeves in homes. Who did a bunch of drugs and then laid out the light switch plan? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So luckily, there was a way of getting light inside the closet, which is Really what I wanted to do there anyway. There was an outlet on the outside side wall of the closet. So I fed that line through into the closet and installed an outlet on the inside wall of the closet. Now, not everybody's going to be comfortable doing that, but that's something that I have plenty of experience with and that sort of project doesn't phase me. So I have electricity in my closet now. Now what am I going to do? I installed a light strip on the shelf above the bar. The idea being that the light in there is going to light up specifically the coats that are in there. It's not going to light stuff in the shelf above it. Frankly, we don't want people looking on the shelf above it because we'll probably be storing things there. But it will light up the coats that are hanging there. And it's a really nice effect. I put the strip in rails, so it's a nice diffused light. And I used a driver for it that dims the light on when it first comes on, so it looks nice there. And to trigger it, I used a Hue motion sensor and a smart switch. I ended up using one of the $10 Maris HomeKit-compatible smart plugs. The smart plugs they sell, uh, they're kind of bulletproof. They have been very reliable. And $10, can't really beat that for something that is going to work with HomeKit. And that was my goal. I also tried a different kind of sensor. I tried the 
Onvis sensor, which is a less expensive HomeKit sensor. I think it costs about $25 instead of the usual $40 for a good motion sensor. I still don't understand why motion sensors are so expensive. Actually, they went up. Hue raised the price of its motion sensor from 40 to 45 recently. Ugh. Right. But speaking of bulletproof, that Hue motion sensor is right. pretty rock solid. So. It's the best. It's and and I'll talk about that again in a minute, but it's great. It's very reliable. So I got some uh I forget what they call them, but the 3M strips that are kind of like Velcro, but they stick to the wall and and stuck this thing to the door jam above the door so that when you open the door, the light dims on. It's on a, a setting in an automation in HomeKit so that after a minute, if there isn't any motion, it'll turn off again. Otherwise, it does stay on. I had an interesting conversation on Twitter with my friend Jimmy who didn't realize that that off setting doesn't actually turn it off if motion is still occurring, which is really nice. So uh, it, it'll ensure that the light stays on as long as it needs to. So that was quite a project, but the end result is really nice. I'm very happy with it. My next problem that I had, there's no light switch in the garage. There are lights there. You have to turn them on from the mudroom, which is great if you're entering the garage from the mudroom. Not so great if you're entering it from the garage door. So I had tried to get my builder to install a switch in there. It was something that they agreed to do, but it wasn't happening yet, and I got tired of waiting. So I installed a smart switch, the first smart switch I installed in the home, and a motion sensor. And I did some tests on motion sensors there as well. I tested the Hue indoor and outdoor. And let me tell you, as much as I'm a fan of the Hue indoor sensor, that Hue outdoor sensor is amazing. Hmm. In terms of its sensitivity and its range, it had a far better line of sight for everything in the two-car garage there and the different angles where you might enter it than I could get the Hue motion sensor, the normal Hue motion sensor to respond to. So went with the outdoor sensor inside the garage and it is working great. I like that idea. I might have to might have to steal that and automate the garage because that's a place that a light is very commonly left on for us. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I did automate it, not just with the light going on when there's motion, but then again, after five minutes, it's going to turn itself off because, yes, often forget to turn off the garage lights. So that that's a nice way of handling that. Now, I mentioned that I installed a smart switch. What smart switch? I ended up going with the Leviton Decora smart switches, the second generation switches that they came out with. I'll talk more about these in a little bit, but I'm so far really, really impressed with these switches. They're rockers. So they work the way I want it to. You press the top for it to go on. You press the bottom for it to go off. They also have a dimmer model, which is nice. They're highly configurable in their app. You don't have to sign up for their cloud account. If you don't want to, you can just use them with HomeKit. And they are basically 
everything compatible. I say anything, everything, but I don't know that they work with smart things yet, but they are uh, compatible with all the major assistants, with Ift, with Schleg. So they, they have a, a really good array of integrations with this second generation of the line. You may remember, and I'm probably going to be talking about this on an upcoming episode of Home On, you may remember that the initial Decora smart line was the line of too many SKUs. They had all of their products available in four different flavors. They had Wi-Fi. They had Bluetooth. They had HomeKit that was neither the Wi-Fi or the Bluetooth SKU. They had a Z-Wave version. So now they've consolidated those RF versions that aren't Zigbee or Z-Wave down to one SKU, which makes a lot more sense. Nice. That room without a switch on the inside is my pantry in my house. You turn the light on on the outside, and I was constantly going in and forgetting to turn the light on or forgetting to turn it off. So I first thought, all right, I'll put motion-sensing bulbs in the ceiling. I know that uh, you can buy a number of brands different bulbs that have motion sensors built into them. Sengled has some great options there. And when I started investigating, I realized that my cans weren't big enough for those types of bulbs. So I eventually found an off-brand that I didn't like at all. And I didn't like that the bulbs came on at different times. That was kind of annoying. So again, I went with a smart switch and a motion sensor and automations through HomeKit. I, again, used the smart switch version, uh, the switch version instead of the dimmer, from the Leviton line. It's working great. Does exactly what I needed to do. Tested a couple different motion sensors in there. I tested the Fabaro HomeKit sensor, the Hue, and the Onvis again. And again, for this use case, Hue wins. And Hue wins in here because of speed. In this case, the Hue turns on a good second, sometimes second and a half faster than any of these other devices. And what's interesting there is that the Hue is going through a bridge and it is still faster than these other devices that are communicating directly to HomeKit. I don't know. It's rock solid. That thing, I'm telling you. That's why they're charging more for it. Probably. (laughs) All right. Well, at some point in time, we went away and I thought, well, I need to get some lamps on timers. So I've reinstalled my Lutron lamp dimmers that I had. And that meant reinstalling my Lutron bridge. That's when I also had set up the Lutron Picos to work through HomeBridge. And again, automated all of that through HomeKit. That's all working nicely. I just have some lamps in the living room and some lamps in the family room working on those. And then I wanted to add a switch into the family room. So we bought a chandelier for the family room. And when I went investigating in the ceiling to hang the chandelier, I realized that the builder had run a three-wire up to the chandelier box, which is great. That means there was a separate power line for 
a ceiling fan to power the fan and a light with different switches if you wanted to through different circuits. So I thought, okay, this is really good. I can use this other circuit for something else and fed that over to a different light that I'll maybe talk about at some other point in time, but not today. And wanted to be able to switch that. But the problem was that there wasn't room for another switch in my switch box. It was already a four gang switch box and everything was spoken for. So how would I put another switch in? Well, I could get one of those double split switches, but I don't particularly like those. And I really wanted the ability to dim all of these. So I went down into the basement and found my old Insteon stuff. This is on, I don't know, maybe April 9th or 10th that I installed this (laughs) stuff. And I didn't plan to hook up my bridge or anything like that because you can connect Insteon things manually. But the reason for doing this is that I had Insteon micro modules and I had Insteon keypads. And so in the space of one switch that was there before, I could hook up a micro module, which is a little thing that goes in the back of a box to control one circuit and be able to dim that. And then the dimmer itself or the the keypad itself can control a load, can be a dimmer. And then I just assigned one of the extra buttons on the keypad to that micro module. So I can turn it on and off separately. And I can also dim the light that was there, the chandelier that I installed. Worked great. I had some extra buttons that were already etched the way I wanted them to be, put that in there and thought, one day when I figure out what I want to do with my lighting, I'll set that up with the other Insteon stuff that I have. And then four days later, Insteon shut down. So this doesn't really change my intended use of this because this is solving the problem that I needed to solve. I don't need to automate this. If I decide to automate it at some point, maybe I'll you know, use one of these Insteon server fallback solutions that I've talked about previously. But this is a kind of a, a, a weird situation because it's a smart product, but I'm not using it as a smart product or as a connected product. Yeah. It just depends on whether or not that'll just be a constant reminder and it'll make you sad every time you use the switch about Insteon. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Um, <laughs> good foreshadowing. So <laughs> one more thing I want to talk about with these Leviton switches is that Leviton came out with something that I've seen other manufacturers do. And this is what they call an anywhere switch. So in addition to the smart switch, they also have this remote switch that is nothing more than a paddle operated by coin batteries. There's nothing behind it. So you can put it anywhere you want it. You can install it, screw it right to the wall, or you can screw it on the front of a box if you have a spare space, or maybe you want to override a three-way circuit and put a switch in for something else there. You could do that. I love these things. I think this is a great concept. I don't think they have the ergonomic feel 
right. It doesn't have the right press feel to it necessarily, but it's extremely functional. And it has helped me solve problems in my house, which is that I would walk into a room, turn around to go hit a switch, and there wasn't a switch there. Again, don't know what the electrician was thinking when they were setting up their electrical plan. But when I walk into a room, I expect there to be a switch on the wall on the side of the door where it opens. Yep. A few of our rooms did not have that. So I solved that problem by just putting one of these anywhere switches on the wall and paired it with one of their Decora smart switches. Really cool way of handling that. I'm really happy about that. I also solved my bathroom fan problem. And my bathroom fan problem for my shower is that the switch for it is way over at the door. And I say way over, but it's like two or three meters, really. It's not that far. But it's not that near the shower. And I often forget to turn on the fan when I get on the shower. So now I'm wet and I want the fan on and I don't want to have to trudge across a slippery tile floor to put the fan on. There's a switch for the light right next to the shower. So I put one of these fake switches for, or one of these remote switches next to it. It's just a single gang box that's there for the light switch. I put a double gang plate on top of it and tucked this thing behind it, which is part of how they advertise it. You can, you can just add a switch on the wall next to one that's already there. Cool. With nothing more than a plate. And now I have a fan switch right next to the light switch in case I happen to forget to turn that on. Handy. Yeah. And then finally, I installed a Nest thermostat. We were having problems with our heat pump. So the HVAC guy was convinced that it was the thermostat. It wasn't the thermostat. But he was convinced it was. So I said, don't go out and buy a new thermostat because I'm just going to hate it. I'm going to get something and install it ourselves. So I did. I installed a Nest Learning Generation 3, the latest of that. I'm sure they'll come out with a brand new one now that I just bought that. And I haven't even connected it yet. We're really just using it as an intelligent, self-contained thermostat. I haven't gone through the process of pairing it with the app. And part of that is that I can't – I really don't want to give up my Nest account. But I know that I should connect this directly to Google. So I'm not there yet in my head. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, those are the things that I did in my new home. That's how I've set up our smart stuff in our home so far. Otherwise, I'm really trying to hold off on stuff. I don't want to be buying new stuff right now. I don't have any plans for whole home lighting like I did in the old house. And particularly now, given the fate of Insteon and the Nokia line that I worked on with Smart Labs last year, that now is probably never going to come out. And that, my friend, that is what I am sad about because that was a really cool line of products. I have a board that has a bunch of boxes in it that I install switches and things that I'm testing just so that I have a place to test stuff without actually installing them somewhere in my house. Right now, they are not housing my Nokia stuff anymore. I actually uninstalled them this past weekend, and that made me 
very sad. <laughs> so, you know, we'll gradually continue to use some of the old stuff that we have and I'll buy some new stuff. But for the most part, I'm waiting for matter. Okay. Well, that is a good lead into what we're going to talk about next. So let's take a quick break if we have a sponsor and uh, come back with more smart home discussion. Everyone says that starting a podcast is easy, but let me tell you, making a podcast is hard work. That's where today's sponsor, Lightning Pod, comes in. If you have a podcast or you want to start one, then you should check them out. They can help you with every step of the podcast production process. We've been working with Lightning Pod founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. Eric currently helps us with editing and copywriting, but he's also available to help your podcast with recording, monetization, website design, and more. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. All experience levels are welcome. So whether you're a veteran podcaster or a total newbie, you should check them out. That's lightningpod.fm. What's going on in the smart home space? So, you know, a little bit of a different topic, but I mentioned I was at uh, Parks Connections in Texas last week. And uh, really great to be back at a, a Parks conference and see people in general again. And just kind of get reconnected with where things are in the industry. In general, just reaffirmed a lot of beliefs and assumptions I had about what things are going on right now in the industry. But, you know, one thing, you know, you mentioned kind of waiting on matter. One thing that really hit home for me is it feels like the smart home we're waiting for is always right around the corner. And that's never been truer than it is right now, because it feels like everybody is just waiting on bated breath for matter to show up and solve all the problems. And one of the things I was bummed about was the keynote speaker from the CSA was not able to make it. So that was a speech that I think really would have driven home what everybody else was talking about, just to hear from them kind of where their position is on things. And unfortunately that was a voice that was missing so yeah but yeah i think i think you know that's that's a general theme is that you know there's less products coming out there are less people investing in things right now like it just feels like we're in a holding pattern uh waiting for matter to to drop not surprising and i i kind of feel like this is the make it or break it for matter they cannot delay again they have to deliver this year. Yeah, I mean, part of me supports the delays because it. I so wanted to be right, and I so wanted to be a smooth introduction because I also think they could blow it by fumbling into the market. But I agree with you that at some point you gotta you gotta get moving, even if that means that they cut down what's in the initial spec. To, you know, they change the scope of it if necessary. But we're now at the point, I think, you know, I, I haven't seen any hard data on this, but I suspect we're at the point where a failure for matter to deliver on time could impact the continued viability of some companies. Yeah. Because there are companies that are waiting on that spec. To release product. Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more to the like people limping product into the market, like the new Ecobees that just came out. 
that they were probably planning on releasing with matter logos on the box and then they just said we can't wait any longer and at least for them they were able to come out with a plan and they said their official line was it it, this device is fully capable of supporting matter but we can't you know until it's final we can't promise anything which seems to make sense and you know you mentioned google so we're going to talk about next google io but i feel like they're doing the same dance that they're not making, you know, they're saying that some devices will support it, but others are not making any promises on yet. Fair enough. Yeah. So transitioning to that, we we had Google I.O. recently, and they did talk about Matter kind of doubling down on their commitment, showed a little bit of their setup experience, as well as some information about how automations are going to work. Um, there's a great interview with Michelle Turner by our, our friend Jen Tui over on The Verge. So recommend everybody check that out as well. But it's just interesting to me to see how everybody's going to differentiate their offering with Matter. And I think that'll be a really interesting part of this to see how that shakes out. That there's there's an opportunity for everybody to kind of put their own spin on it. And their own, you know, advantages to why you want to use Google and not somebody else. But I think that was the interesting part to me. And I suspect that some companies are looking at Matter as a potential problem for them. That if they adopt this global standard, do they then just become another widget maker? And You and I have talked about this multiple times, about the importance of differentiating your product or your feature set or whatever else doesn't mean that it has to be incompatible with other stuff. So I agree. I'm excited to see what companies do to differentiate their experiences. Yep. All right. Well, unfortunately, we don't have a smart home question to do today. But if you do have a smart home question, you can send that to us using the hashtag AskSmartHomeShow. And uh, we'll try to pick a question if we have one to include in each show. All right, Adam. I think we're done this time. Where can people find you if they're interested in finding out more about what you're up to? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice or everything my company's working on at ConnectSense.com. How about you, Richard? You can find me at Richard Gunther on Twitter and over at TheDigitalMediaZone.com. The Smart Home Show is part of Technology.fm, a collection of great tech-focused podcasts, including Home Tech FM, The Spoon Podcast, and my other show, Home On. And at smarthome.fm, you can find our show notes and details about each of these episodes. Send us feedback at feedback at smarthome.fm. And of course, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Do us a favor. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating or tell a friend. See you later. Thanks for joining us.